Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Professor Beverly Crocker. Dr. Beverly Crocker is Executive Director and CEO of the Business Ethics Alliance and holds the Robert B. Doherty Chair in Business Ethics and Society in the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University. Recognized with numerous awards and peer-reviewed research publication, Beverly has driven the Business Ethics Alliance to be the most comprehensive, CEO-engaged, city-level business ethics organization in the nation. As both a practitioner and academic, Beverly understands the need for theoretically based, accessible business ethics tools. Having spoken around the world, she has expertise in ethical leadership, stopping moral snowballs, aligning an organization to its core values, communicating during everyday moral dilemmas and moral execution quandaries, and more. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Thank you, Stuart. I think we should start at the beginning, which maybe is starting, I don't know, with the Greeks or 3,000 years ago. But, but ethics feels like a weighty and, dare I say, um, f- for many perhaps, a, a somewhat opaque, arcane, even boring concept. So what are ethics? God, a wonderful question. And every time we do a program, there's at least one person that asks that question. Um, it's a philosophical question, and that's pretty cool because my background is philosophy. It all depends on how you skin the cat, so to speak, in terms of how you answer that question. So, uh, let me say that there's a body of thought that says that uh, ethics are the study of morality. And so, ethics is the discipline and morality is the, uh, the data. There's another group of people that say that uh, ethics has to do with social norms about how to be good, and morality has to do with personal values. And so, they slice the pie that way. Ancient versus modern, uh, ancient philosophers talked about ethics being about the good life, how to live a good life. But then modern philosophers talked about really uh, ethics and morality being about obligation and duty. Uh, And so they they make it a narrower um, uh, concept than the ancients did. I pretty much say, since I'm a farmer's daughter and a native Nebraskan, I see things very commonsensically. And uh, I think that ethics and morality mean the same thing. And we could take a lot of time to talk about, you know, the particulars of this, but it's about what's good as opposed to what's bad. It's about what's right as opposed to what's wrong. It's about looking long-term as well as short-term. And it's about striving to be something bigger than just ourselves. It's about striving to be noble and honorable, whether it's a person or an organization or a community or a world. What I particularly like about that, you eschew this academic passing of ethics and and morality. Yeah, there's some academics that say I don't do ethics anymore, by the way. Really? Oh, so you've been shunned by your tribe. I have, yeah. (laughs) But I found a new tribe, so it's okay. So, well, I I, I was going to say that maybe CEOs are opening their arms to you, but um, perhaps when they see that you come uh, carrying right behavior, maybe that's not quite so um, appealing. You know, uh, surprisingly, I have to say, and, you know, I've been doing the Business Ethics Alliance for 10 years and then teaching in the Hyder College for, oh, about a million. Well, really, it's about 30 or so. Um, I find that business practitioners just embrace this. I find that there are so many people that don't get 
a good rap. People are, you know, they're just normal people trying to, you know, make enough money to be able to send their kids to school and to pay their mortgages and go on some really great trips and buy a car. And, you know, there are different levels of that, of course, but I just find that business people really care about running profitable organizations and, or if they're not for profit, being sustainable. But generally, they really want to do it with integrity and honor and fair deals. Only a couple of times have I found, and maybe I just, I'm a Pollyanna, I don't know, uh, glasses half full, but I just find over and over again that um, business people embrace, you know, the values part of doing business. You know, so you were describing and defining ethics, but really you wanted to take it from, in some ways, from the ivory tower and more abstract considerations and make it real and practical and enable us to make sense of it in our workplaces and in our public squares and in our personal lives. And, and that seems to just make it much more relevant. So in, in that vein, how do ethics show up in our daily lives? In, in what ways do you help people frame ethics in the lives that we live every day? Okay, so you're going to have to stop me here um, because I might go on too long. But, you know, when I started teaching and started thinking about business ethics um, as a philosopher, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to use business examples and issues in order to better understand philosophy. So it was an exercise in being a philosopher. And uh, about the second year, I was uh, teaching a graduate class in the Hyder College, and I was doing that. <laughs> and so I was, you know, saying, oh, okay, so here's an ethical issue about, let's say, uh, incentive for employees. And let's work through this in order to better understand deontology, utilitarianism, and virtue ethics. And I had a student come up to me after class, and I can't remember the name of the company. There was a pickle company. Okay, anyway, she was she would work for that company and she was supervising people on the line. And uh, she came up to me in a, in a gracious way and said, you know, Dr. Bev, this is all really pretty interesting, but quite honestly, it doesn't translate in terms of my everyday business practice. I want to know how to, how to show respect to my employees. I want to teach them how to be respectful to each other. I want to be able to handle the temptations that people have with regards to stealing stuff. And, you know, if I start talking about utilitarianism and deontology in order to help them, you know, work through issues, their eyes are going to glaze over and it's really no help. And so she was one of many that got me to see years ago that really doing business ethics as a philosophical exercise is really great for an academic, but it does nothing for the real world. And so partly because of that, I just flipped things around. And so it's, uh, it's more, what are the business issues and let's deal with those. And if somehow philosophy can help figure that out, well, then let's use philosophy. But what I found down through the years is what people are craving is more explanations of why good people do bad things. And so now you see the discipline has really expanded and you have psychology and so psychologists and sociologists that have entered the field and they're providing us with those 
explanations that uh, are the blind spots that we can identify and articulate uh, that makes good people do bad things. So, so Hidden Brains, you know the podcast, Shankar Vedantin, he does a lot of this. It's the, it's the behavioral sciences, and that's ethics too. And so I find that business leaders and business practitioners are really interested in identifying those blind spots like the myth of invisibility or, you know, um, uh, gaming the system and understanding how you can get caught up in things uh, that make you do things you otherwise wouldn't even consider doing and how you can stop yourself from being in in those kinds of situations. Um, The issue that's on everybody's mind these days is sexual harassment because uh, that's hit the news here in the United States as well as across the pond. I was just over in England and the President's Club got taken down. Um, They're out of business now uh, because of the scandal there. Uh, when it comes to something like sexual harassment, it really is a question of respect, you know, um, the difference between the law and ethics. We can have a values-based culture that really looks at um, the principles and the values of ethics like um, respect and dignity and compassion and empathy. And we can also have what's called a rules-based organizational culture where you look at um, don't break the law because if you do, it's going to be bad for you and bad for the company too. And you can hear in the conversations that are held in organizations whether an organization is more rules-based or values-based. And you can see in the training that people get for something like sexual harassment that the training can be either values-based or rules-based. And let me just give an example of that. You're sitting in a training session, and by the way, there's some studies that show that a lot of the training for sexual harassment is just horrible and it doesn't work. Um, um, If they say to you, look, here's the law, uh, quid pro quo, sexual, uh, you know, uh, hostile environment, third party, here's a definition, you know, this is against the law, don't do it. Uh, That's a rules-based education. Instead, you say, look, you want people to treat you with respect and you want to do the same. And so, how do you do, how do you do that when it comes to sexuality in the workplace? And so, you need to be aware of the fact that um, what you say and what you do might offend somebody or might make them uh, happy. Uh, people also need to be assertive, on the other hand, when they hear jokes or something is done to them sexually, uh, to speak up and say, I like it or I don't. And those two aspects of that conversation, that communication, the assertiveness and um, the awareness, that's what makes it the case. If you focus on that, that's what makes it the case that you're talking more about your values and training towards values as opposed to the law.
So one of the things that you are experienced in and expert in is the alignment of an organization's behaviors and attitudes and its ethical foundations. Their culture, yeah. To core values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that sort of discussion shows up in the business world in, in multiple ways, whether we're talking about branding or we're talking about uh, performance or employee engagement. How do you go about orienting up an organization to its core values? Uh, the overarching thing you want to remember is that a culture has two parts. It has a formal part and an informal part. And so the informal, the, excuse me, the formal part of a culture is one where you have policies and your processes and you write them down. And then when somebody's employed, you give them a book that has all of them in it and you say, hey, this is the way that uh, we think we should all act here. And um, as an organization grows, you need more and more of those formal policies and processes. It really helps define the culture of the organization. And one of those formal um, policies is a code of ethics or a a set of core values. And so it's really good, I would say, as you're starting an organization, if you're an entrepreneur or if you don't have it yet and you've been in business for 20 years, to just uh, take the time to write down your core values and then um, explode those across your employees, your customers, your, your stakeholders, etc. Um, the other part of a culture is called the informal part, and that's not the way we should do it. That's the way people actually do do things. And so that's driven spontaneously. It's not that there's anything written down. You join a company and uh, you watch how people take breaks and when they come back and uh, whether they're taking stuff or not. And uh, you watch how they deal with conflicts of interest and you watch how they deal with uh, abusive behavior or whether there is such a thing in the organization. And you tend to follow suit. Um, you will, we will tend to follow the informal culture over the formal culture, what's written down, right? And so uh, a healthy culture is one where you align the two. So you need to have things written down that says this is how we're gonna how we should act. And then you need to drive those shoulds through your actual practices. And uh, that's influence. And anybody who's an ethical leader, whether they're at the top of an organization or in the middle or the bottom, hierarchically speaking, they can all be ethical leaders by having influence over others where they're trying to make sure that their actions follow the policies and the processes of the organization. So on the one hand, we look upwards to our managers and leaders to role model what good behavior or the, the ethical values of an organization are. But then we also, it seems, have this responsibility not only to actually not just be sheep, but to live according to a set of values, ethical values that we ourselves have. But then that accountability also means that we may find ourselves in conflict between our own values and those that are being modeled or are failing mm -hmm. to be modeled. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be some tension, inherent tension between our own values that we should be possessing and acting upon and those that are being modeled or failing to be modeled up the power hierarchy, as it were. Well, and so when, when it comes to ethics or morals, we say that there are four different levels or four different dimensions. So there's personal, professional, organizational, and social. And so um, they are what they're, they're named. I don't have to go into a definition of them. But you could see how your personal values, as you just said, Stuart, can be in conflict with an organization's values or the way the organization is living out its values. I just talked with someone who found out that her organization deals with the NRA. 
she's totally against guns. And so in finding this out, she's bothered that she works at this organization. And she's questioning, what do I do about this? Now, when you're young, I can't help but point out that we tend to go to extremes and we hear, you know, we find out something like that and our response is, "Ah, I'm going to (laughs) quit. You know, life is not easy like that, right? Um, You need to find ways to live by your values at the same time you're, you know, working within professions and organizations and societies. It's, you got to look for the win-win. Uh, and there's nothing the matter with having dual uh, motives in, in a situation. Um, so that's where she's at now. That, it makes it a dilemma for her because there are conv- uh, values in conflict and she has to decide you know, what overrides by using maybe a good decision-making model. But yeah, uh, your point of personal values, sometimes being in conflict with organizations values. It happens all the time. You know, so we should talk about the work that the Business Ethics Alliance that you created, engineered, founded, and are driving forward. We should talk about what that does. Yeah, we started the Alliance about 10 years ago in order to promote business ethics education in the community, and nobody else was doing it. And as a matter of fact, no one else has uh, has our model. Uh, we are unique across the country, as you said in the introduction. Yeah, to, to, to be able to have conversations that are civil conversations where there's a disagreement, but you can walk away still respecting each other for having a, a, a difference of opinion. I think that's so important for our societies, and I know that you agree. It's also the case that uh, when we started the Alliance 10 years ago, we asked ourselves, you know, are we, are we judge and jury with regards to the right answer in a situation? Um, are we saints and uh, we're all better than everybody else? And so you should all look up to us for being, you know, better with regards to uh, living uh, an ethical life in business. And we decided that our mantra is we're not judge and jury and we're not saints, but we're a group of people in Omaha that really strive to do it right in business. And we're going to make mistakes and, uh, and we're going to overcome those and move on. And that's kind of the tone that's set in our, in our programs. So the Alliance now, 10 years later, is known for two things. We do community programs and we have a whole array of those executive breakfast, uh, networking luncheons, dialogues that are called our mind candy, where we talk about current issues and business ethics. We've uh, partnered with the Scottish Rite in order to do ethics on trial, uh, where we actually create uh, plays. And then the audience is the jury, and they get to use their mobile devices in order to vote on you know, who's, who's guilty and who isn't. We have programs for young professionals, uh, programs for our ethics and compliance officers of our largest organizations. Uh, and so, uh, and then even Moral Superheroes, we started that program a number of years ago, K through 12, where we have uh, moral superheroes that um, really instantiate the core values of the Omaha business community that we identified and articulated about eight years ago. And they go into this, uh, I mean, you could wear it too. Stuart. You could put on one of the moral superhero outfits. You could be ace for accountability or mo for moral courage. 
and um, uh, it, you know they have the muscles and they have the capes and uh, we go into the uh, OPS uh, school system and uh, we just hang out and get kids to think about you know um, moral courage and uh, uh, responsibility and not that they necessarily know what the words mean necessarily when they're six years old but they're starting to use the words and that's the first step isn't it so we're known for our community programs and we've been doing that for about 10 years and uh, then we also do fee-based products and services we found that people when they came to our community programs they said a couple of things because we measure everything so we know what they say they said number one they liked how practical our programs were uh, and that's that's a really good thing they also said that um, they felt like they ha- we've broken through the moral isolation that happens. A lot of times you feel like you're the only one that cares about doing business in a particular way or being in the workplace in a particular way. But when you're in a group of people that all you know are kind of singing the same song, it feels really good. You're not alone anymore. And then the last thing we heard is, gosh, I wish that more of my colleagues at my office could hear this too. And they didn't have the chance to come on down to a program. And so then we intentionally uh, devised some uh, fee-based products and services for organizations. We go into the companies and then we get more people within those organizations to learn about ethical leadership and ethical communication and blind spots and decision making and those kinds of things. And so uh, we have a website that people uh, go to in order to learn about our resources, and it's businessethicsalliance.org. And Stuart, I don't know if I told you, but uh, you know, across the world, people know about us. And we found out that Reading, England uh, has been kind of stalking us for a while and uh, got a hold of me uh, last year because they found us on the web. And they said, oh my gosh, we want to create something in Reading uh, like you have in Omaha, Nebraska. And so I was you know, working with them, advising them on how to do that. And just at the end of January, I went over for their launch and they've started to create something like we have in uh, uh, Reading. It's called Ethical Reading. Uh, ours is you know, the Business Ethics Alliance, and we talk about Ethical Omaha. But um, this idea of just providing a space for people to have the conversations, providing tools for them to be able to make good decisions and learn more about themselves as ethical human beings, taking that back to their workplaces and then spreading it further and further. Um, We're doing that here in Omaha and other communities are finding out about us and they're doing it in their communities too, even across the pond in uh, Reading, which is about an hour outside of London by train. Is there a reason why this focus on ethics would appear to be so interesting and so relevant and so eye-catching in some ways now when the history of vice and virtue has accompanied us for a long time in our history. It's not as if human beings have been just in you know the territory of vice and, and we're only now discovering that there's a way to be virtuous. So what is it about now that seems to have this study of a practical way to be ethical so prominent? I think that's a wonderful question. Um, And I'm not a behavioral uh, ethicist, um, but I can tell you back to Shankar Vedantin on The Hidden Brain. Uh, His most recent uh, podcast is Why Now? 
And it's really focused on sexual harassment and why it's a case that, you know, with Anita uh, Hill back in the 90s, whole groups of women were reporting, but nothing happened. And now, 2017, things are happening. People are being taken down because groups of women are saying, we're not going to take it anymore. What's happened? Why now? And um, one of the concepts that uh, Shankar talks about is called horizontal violence or horizontal action. And um, I'm going to focus on the the concept of horizontal action comes from uh, research on horizontal violence, Um, but I'm going to focus on the horizontal action. And the best way I can describe it is to picture it as a kind of a teapot. So you have a teapot that has the lid on and something's been put in the is it a stem? Is that what it is? Where the water comes out? Come on, you know this. You're English. That's the spout. The spout. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so the spout has been jammed, and so but the it's on top of the stove, and it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and you know, but it it can't go up. Nothing can go, go get out from the top. So what happens instead? the whole teapot explodes. It goes horizontal. It releases its energy from the sides as opposed to the top. Shankar is arguing that this is what's happening when it comes to sexual harassment. When we see what's happened with our political system and how some of our top people in the United States are not being held responsible for some of the claims and some of the the actions uh, women and men are saying, well, we're just not going to take it. And uh, there's so much energy that it's just, it's exploding sideways. And I think that we can use that analogy and that concept of horizontal action when it comes to ethics in general, too. I think that we have seen so many scandals. We have and the media is really focused on the negative and the wake up call, so we hear those all the time. And um, people are saying, "I'm just not going to take it anymore." Uh, we see action uh, from when it comes to policies and procedures and rules from our federal and state governments in a way we didn't before. And we see organizations stepping up and really trying to create cultures and really uh, spending money and time on understanding what a culture is and trying to create those. And you find individuals that are at the same place as well. So maybe it's horizontal action that explains why now.
podcast, I would argue that the time is always right to be thinking about ethical behavior and, and how we live a good life, a right life. So that's not an old or an irrelevant topic at any time. But given that this seems to be a call to action, a particular moment to be attentive to our ethical lives in some way, on the one hand, it seems as if we instinctively know what the right thing to do is. So why do we need to be taught that? And then when we just peel back the layers of that platitude, we realize that actually many situations in our work and our social lives confront us daily with some kind of choice about what is the right thing to do, both big and small. So what are some of the tools and the processes that you have developed that help people and organizations grapple with and build that muscle for us to be um, these these ethical superheroes in our in our own experiences. Yeah, superheroes, ethical leaders. You know, uh, from every level in an organization and every part of a community and in the world. You know, uh, uh, one of the tools that I think is the most powerful, and when you hear it, it's an aha, or it's like, really, of course, that why that's something to do. It's the use of ethical words the use of moral words. And it's really as simple and as powerful as that. We don't tend to use words like that was a noble thing to do. We don't tend, when we compliment somebody, what do we say? Uh, Over in England, you say brilliant or brill. And over here we say, oh, awesome. Okay. And then you leave it at that. Well, what the heck is awesome and what's brilliant? And so if we break that down and compliment somebody and say, you were really patient with me when I was struggling with that particular action. And I just want to thank you for your patience. Uh, That meant a lot to me. That's a way of using a moral word. Patience is a moral word. It's a moral virtue uh, that really gets to your soul. If you talk in terms of souls, it will make you just feel good about what you did for me because I've identified it and I have articulated by using a more specific moral moral word. And so we educate on the use of moral words. And uh, it's what you can do, any one of you, just go to the internet and uh, Google moral words and you'll find a list of those puppies. And uh, maybe get a, a put a list of 50 moral words by your computer or in your bathroom when you're fixing yourself up in the morning and look at one of those words and say, ah, I'm going to pick happiness or I'm going to pick um, compassion today and use that word five times that day as you're going about your business or going about your world. Just practice doing it because ethics is like anything else that matters to you. Uh, If you love to bake, if you love to play a musical instrument, if you love to sew, it takes practice, right? You get better at it over time. Same darn thing with ethics. You get better at it when you practice it. And so if you practice the use of moral words, it just kind of gets into your DNA and you're saying those things all the time to people and they notice it and then they start doing it too. And so that's one easy way, costs no money whatsoever uh, for leaders to use moral words uh, in the workplace. Uh, and it then develops the culture, then then makes it a good place for them to, for people to work. You are the co-author of... <laughs> 
ethanary. It's, uh, yeah. We made ethanary, up a word. A commonsensical ethics dictionary. That's true. Does yeah. it contain some of the language? 50. Yes, we have 50 ethical words, uh, and they have commonsensical definitions, and then we have little illustrations. Think about how hard it is to illustrate a moral concept. Okay, so how would you, right now, uh, do this for me, please. How would you illustrate integrity? Integrity means walking your talk, right? That you have principles and you walk them. You know, your actions follow your words, so to speak. How the heck do you illustrate that with a picture? We had to come up with an answer to that, as well as the other 49 words that are in the ethanary. Well, the example that I'm drawing now, go for you it. You can't see, <laughs> but uh, if you acquire ethanary, you can see what 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 your <laughs> your professional ethical perspective on on that diagram could look like. Mm -hmm. What a great challenge to think about how those could be illustrated, and perhaps it's a good mind game too. E even if, uh, like me, you don't have uh, a great talent at. Um, design, visual design, nonetheless, we can play over in our minds what, what has that word looked like either demonstrated by me or mm -hmm. where I've seen it in action mm -hmm. with other people. Mm -hmm. What took you into this field? Clearly, you're smart and you studied philosophy, but nonetheless, something along the way in your upbringing and that stirred your, your interests took you towards philosophy and this field. So where does that motivation come from? Let me say a couple of things. Number one, um, I'm average when it comes to smarts, okay? Uh, and I know this because I hang with really smart people. Um, what I have is persistence. Oh my gosh. And I learned that when I was a kid. I'm a farmer's daughter, like I told you. And uh, when I was a kid walking the bean fields, you know, you had to get out of the field by either going forward and cleaning the rest of the uh, row or going backwards and you've already done that. Well, you might as well go forwards and clean the rest of the row and then circle back and do that uh, row as well. That was beat into me by the time I was a kid. And that is an important uh, value or virtue to have. Um, so that's something for everybody to remember. I mean, you know, you don't have to be the the smartest kid in the room in order to make a big impact in the world. Um, but the question, like, why why ethics? Why business ethics? <laughs> that's like asking me that question is like asking why do I love my partner? I just do. Okay, it just happened. Um, and why ethics? I don't know. I just did, and it just happened. And here I am with ethics blinders on. Who knows why, but there it is. Have you ever been tempted into something else, a completely different calling? Uh, you, you've traveled extensively. You could be a travel writer. Oh, my God. You know, I wish I had the ability to be a journalist where I could just, you know, live out of my suitcase and travel the world all the time, but I don't have that skill. So, um, no, this is this is what I get. This is my life. It's a good one. Yeah, I'll take what I have. So no one is immune from ethical dilemmas. And no one is immune from the temptations either. Because there are two things. Dilemmas are where your values are in conflict with each other. A temptation is you know the right thing, but you're tempted to not live that value. Can I tell you a story? Okay, so my beloved Aunt Lorraine died about two years ago, 
and um, she doesn't have any kids, and um, uh, she was in hospice, and I was with her one evening, and she had made me the executor of her will, one of two people, and um, uh, she told me one day when I was sitting next to her, Bev, I have a safe in the basement of my house, and um, I want you to go into that uh, safe, and I want you to um, see how much money is in there. I've been saving money since I was a kid, and I knew this because she had an egg route that we used to help her with. And so, she would chuck money away. Uh, I didn't know where she put it, but she'd make money, and she'd chuck it away. So, she said, I want to know how much is in there because I'd like to start distributing some of it. So, don't tell your mom, which is her sister, that you're going to go and do that and, and tell her about the safe. I don't want her to know about that. Or your sister, nobody should know. So, yes, Aunt Lorraine, I'll do that. So, a couple nights uh, after that, it was about 11 o'clock at night. It was dark. I went over to her farmhouse. I went into her basement. It was dark. I found her safe. I had a flashlight because there was really no light down there. And so, I was able to get the combination, you know, to make it work. I was able to open the safe. I opened it up and oh my gosh, Stuart, I mean, just packets and packets of money. They're like those bank envelopes, you know, uh, just full of, you know, dollars, five, ten, hundreds. I'm pulling these things out and I put them in front of me. They're just like, uh, like fanned in front of me on the floor. And I'm looking at that money. Nobody knows I'm there. My Aunt Lorraine doesn't even know how much money she has in there. It's 11 o'clock at night. And by the way, I don't know about you, but doesn't everybody have a need for a little bit more money? I mean, I could easily use another 10000 so easily. My mind is reeling. I'm thinking nobody would know. Aunt Lorraine wouldn't even know if I took some of this. That's the ethical temptation thing. It's not a dilemma. I know the right thing to do. The right thing is not to steal from my Aunt Lorraine, right? Now, I could explain it away and say, oh, she probably wouldn't care. Or, you know, maybe I should take this as part of my payment for being an executive uh, for the will, you know, and I would deserve it. You can make those kinds of explanations. But that's the temptation stuff. And so you have to figure out ways to overcome that temptation so that you end up living your values so that you don't hate yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror, that old adage. And uh, there are some tools for that. The one tool I have is called escalation. So by actually telling this over the radio, um, you know, I'm reminded. And I, right after, uh, as it, the day after it happened, I was escalating it at that time. I was telling people this story. Because in telling people the story, I escalated it. And it's like telling people that you're going to run a marathon. You know, it makes it the case that you actually follow through on running that marathon that you want to do. When you escalate uh, ethical situations, is the same thing. It makes me want to do what I know is right, and it keeps the temptation at bay. So I'm telling people about this. And so, um, no, I didn't take the money, uh, but I was tempted to. And I spend my life studying ethics and caring about being a good person. Every single person on the planet can be tempted. That is a nice Mercedes outside, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just teasing.
So a dilemma in that situation might have been you have a value honoring the trust placed in you while maybe having some skepticism that this money has been accurately reported to mm -hmm. the IRS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the values are in conflict. I really don't know which one overrides. And there I have to use my cognitive powers in order to make a decision about which overrides by looking at, and there are three steps, three questions you ask yourself, what are the long-term consequences for this action as opposed to that one, for this value overriding the other value? Um, what are the obligations and duties and rights that are relevant in the situation? Which, when I identify those, which of those options is really the best one. And the third is aspirational. What kind of person do I want to be? What kind of organization do I want to, if you want to roll into organizational issues, what kind of world do I want to create? You know, asking yourself those three simple questions can actually help you decide which value overrides other values in a situation and help you out of an ethical dilemma. Would it be fair to say that each of us has to work out our own set of values, ethical values, and the ordering of their priority? Mm -hmm. Or do you think there are some universal truths? So some of what you've described here would suggest that transparency, candor, honesty are important components, not only of ethical life, but also how we process an evaluation of our ethics, as you did in the situation you just talked about. Yeah, that's a really good uh, question and point. Um, uh, here's what I think. I think that there are universal moral or ethical truths, just as there are universal truths when it comes to physics. Uh, and But they're really, really general when it comes to physics and also when it comes to ethics. And the two general universal truths of ethics are, number one, do good, and number two, don't harm. Now, how are those instantiated in different situations? Um, you know, but then you got layered under those two universal truths, things like uh, transparency, honor, honesty, okay? Um, and you have to, within each situation, decide which of those values override others in those particular situations in order to do the good or to not harm. And that's where the differences lie. Um, you know, in societies as well as individual people, you will order those differently in order to reach those universal values of don't harm and do good. So, and I hate it when some people say, oh, there's no right answer here. And so, uh, we can't ever tell anybody what to do ethically speaking. That's false. There are right answers. There are right answers for you as a person. There are right answers for an organization, there are right answers for a society and for the world. You just have to take the time to be able to work through the values, uh, asking the right questions, and in order to justify your answer. It seems to me as if the important part of this is to have the struggle, to not avoid the struggle. E even if we, as we have before, and as I'm sure we will continue as individuals and organizations, come to perhaps bad outcomes. But nonetheless, an important part of this is to struggle with the dilemma. Well, and that's why going back to the beginning where you asked me to define ethics, you know, it's what's right versus wrong, what's good versus bad. It's looking long-term as well as short-term and it's striving 
it's striving to live a, a life that's just bigger than your own little measly self. So that striving, I mean, that's the struggle part. Um, you don't have striving without the struggle. So you are completely correct. It's just part of who we are to um, have that happen to us. I love how you talk about our measly little selves. <laughs> <laughs> so the Business Ethics Alliance it's, it's been active for a decade, which isn't necessarily a long time. Nonetheless, it, it has been active, which makes me then want to ask, is Omaha a more virtuous city than it was 10 years ago? And is it demonstrably a more virtuous city than those vice-laden communities around us? You ask such hard questions. That's what they asked me in ethical uh, Reading when I was in Reading, England. They said, do you have any metrics to show that actually after 10 years you've made a difference? My response is no. You know, in order to do that, we need to do, do a pre and a post, right? We didn't do a pre. So we don't have any measures from 10 years ago to be able to make a comparison. So I can't answer that. Um, and should I be able to? I don't know. There's a lot of people in Omaha that think that trying to measure the ethics is really wrongheaded. Uh, and that's an interesting uh, conversation to have, I think, whether these things can be measured. What I can say is that organizations have uh, been able to identify um, the fact that by caring about their cultures, they have been able to keep uh, top performers in a way they didn't before they cared uh, and implemented ethics programs. Uh, they have made fewer mistakes dealing with customers and they are able to track that after they have implemented some programs that really focus on the ethical aspect of the culture. So organizationally, I can say that there are measures to show that it makes a difference. I interviewed the Omaha Police Chief, Todd Madra recently, and he said that the number of complaints lodged against the police force have declined over time fairly significantly. And it seems in large part that is because he has been more attentive to what we have been talking about. Now, I don't think he wasn't phrasing it in the language we've been using, but nonetheless, I think the, the issues are very similar. Mm -hmm. The ethical framing of how the police force and individual officers address right from wrong and, and good from bad. Mm -hmm. So that's one really specific and very tangible and, and life-altering behavioral change and organizational change that, that reflects some of the aspects that you're talking that's about. That's brilliant. Yeah. Ethics is hard, I would imagine. It seems hard. And new things come out all the time, new issues come about, but maybe are they old issues too? Um, and technology helps us become more aware of how they, uh, they spread across the globe. I'm not saying that well. Um, what I'm trying to say is this. Uh, you know, you, uh, I'm a product of the 60s, and you go back to the protests uh, of the 60s, and um, we didn't have the technology to really see um, what was happening in the way that we do now. And now, you know, with the NFL and the question of taking the knee, um, you know, uh, that blasts across the world by using social media. And it, it, it's kind of an old question, isn't it? When is it okay to protest? <laughs> and how should you protest, et cetera? Um, so there are 
old questions that continue to be to come up in new ways, perhaps. Given that we have been talking about ethics as a species, as a civilized society for literally thousands of years. I mean, we can go back to the Greeks and, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and, and, be, and, and before them. And Buddha on the other side, Eastern philosophies too, yeah. Exactly. So, and here I am showing my bias to this, this Western philosophy. We, I have we, the same thing. That's how I was trained. So, so there we are. We, we, we have been discussing this for a long time. And as you say, we are still in some ways failing, some ways succeeding, but we're still grappling with this issue. If that is a part of the human condition, to perpetually grapple with this subject, what gives you hope for our ethical future? What gives me hope for our ethical future? That I regularly have contact I, I focus on business ethics. I regularly have contact with business leaders that want to do the right thing in business. And I am working with emerging leaders now that are 20 to 40 years old, that once they hear there's something called the Business Ethics Alliance, they glom onto it and they want to come to programs and they want to have the conversation with the seasoned leaders in order to suck them dry of their, their wisdom. And then I'm in class, and 25 years ago, students would come to my class in the College of Business with their arms folded over their chest saying, oh, yeah, well, maybe Ben and Jerry's can do this, but what about GE? And I don't get that anymore. Now I get students that embrace the conversations and uh, just soak up the information and the tools. So I guess all of that, all those layers make me continue to be hopeful for the future. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Dr. Beverly Crocker. Beverly, thank you for being on the show. What fun. Thank you, Stuart. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>